From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. There are new guidelines from the American College of Cardiology and the American Heart Association about the use of aspirin in people with heart disease. And so we turn to Upstate Cardiologist and Associate Professor of Medicine, Dr. Robert Carhart, to help us understand the changes. Thank you for being here, Dr. Carhart. My pleasure. Now, we've heard for years about people taking a daily aspirin to help prevent a heart attack. Is that no longer the recommendation? That is correct. And, and I think the, the, there are several modifications to that statement. So a lot of this is based on sort of re-looking at data. Um, when the recommendation was initially made, it was based on the fact that it seemed people who took a daily aspirin had less heart attacks, had less strokes. Um, so that's where the original recommendation came in. There was a, a modification to that recommendation probably at least five years ago when it turned out that women actually on a whole got less benefit from that daily aspirin compared to men. Oh, okay. So the original recommendation was anyone over the age of 40 should start an aspirin a day. And typically we're talking 81 milligrams or a baby aspirin. That then became age 50 men more than women. And women didn't seem to really achieve benefit uh, until after the age of 60 to 65. So they modified the guidelines a little bit. Um, But what came out just recently is a big change. Um, And it's really based on assessing risk. So I'm going to start with a, a little extra piece here. This is specifically for primary prevention. So if you've already had a heart attack, if you've already had a stroke, you're not included in these recommendations because you need to be on aspirin for secondary prevention. Okay. So So these are people that have not. Have not yet had an event. Okay. Um, And really what they did is they tried to risk stratify, which makes sense. So the appropriate people get medication the people that don't need it don't take it. And, you know, everyone thought, well, it's 81 milligrams. It's a, quote, baby aspirin. What harm can it do? And that's not correct. I mean, it increases your risk of bleeding, um, most commonly bleeding in the GI tract. Um, it increases your risk of bleeding, certainly, if it's combined with taking that occasional Aleve or Motrin. Um, and you know, even additional supplements, people who take a lot of fish oil or vitamin E are an increased risk for bleeding. So what they wanted to do was look at who is aspirin most appropriate for. So a lot of these, this recommendation is really based on what is your risk? Um, and, and really where the recommendation specifically for aspirin fall is the following. The, the suggestion of everyone between the ages of 40 and 70 should be risk assessed. And there are a whole lot of different uh, tools where you basically put in age and gender and blood pressure, cholesterol, and it gives you a risk score. And people fall into low risk, which means your risk of having a cardiovascular event in 10 years is falls into a percentage range. So people over the over 20% on these risk calculators are considered high risk. Those patients are ones that probably will still benefit from aspirin because the benefit of being on the aspirin 
is higher than the risk of being on the aspirin based on your risk of bleeding when you're taking the aspirin. If you fall in what they consider intermediate range, which is about 7 to 20%, um, then you should weigh it based on other factors. Um, and only the, the recommendation only exists if you're not at additional risk for bleeding. So if you've had other problems that make you prone to bleeding, you've had ulcers in the past, for example, or things like that, then the recommendation says you probably shouldn't be on an aspirin. And, and clearly the biggest group is the low risk. You're, you're, you know, your risk of a cardiac event in the next 10 years is less than 7%. You should not take an aspirin because the risk of being on aspirin is higher than the benefit you're going to get. So we're putting a little bit more kind of emphasis on picking the appropriate target as opposed to. Which makes sense. It sounds like that's, that makes eminent right. sense to and, do. And I so. think that there was a lot of pushback. I mean, I've had a lot of patients over the years who said, you know, I'm bruising, I get nosebleeds. Do I really need to take this? And, you know, most of the patients I see obviously have already had a cardiac event, but you know, their spouse is in the room or what should I tell my family members? And, and so we get into these discussions and this is good because it gives you something to hold on to. So um, looking at the ages of 40 to 70, that's mm -hmm. the age range that you see heart issues coming mm -hmm. to light. Um, what are some of the things that I would have in me that would make me, you know, at higher risk? for? Right. So again, if you're, for example, a cigarette smoker, that increases your risk. If you're a diabetic, that increases your risk. Um, if you're hypertensive uh, and have to take you know, or take medication for hypertension, um, that increases your risk. So age is one of it. And, and another piece of these recommendations, um, speaking of 70, is that once you're past the age of 70, if you've not had a cardiovascular event, there likely is no benefit to take that aspirin because it takes up to 10 years to see the benefit. Oh. So the recommendation now is if you haven't had a heart attack or a stroke by age 70, don't start taking the aspirin then because, again, the risk of bleeding probably outweighs the benefit. Now, how does aspirin work to help prevent? And is it is it just heart attack that it helps prevent? Well, oh. aspirin basically prevents cells in your bloodstream called platelets from clumping together and forming clots. Um, these clots, specifically for heart attack or stroke, for example, if you have a cholesterol plaque in your blood vessel, that plaque ruptures or opens up, the platelets tend to aggregate around that, and that forms the clot. So when you're using this, um, that is what is felt to be the primary benefit. Uh, this is secondary benefit, which is still debated is that aspirin people take it because it reduces inflammation. What makes a plaque more prone to rupture is if the plaque is inflamed or unstable. So there is some belief that that may be an additional benefit to being on the aspirin and how it works, but primarily it's because it decreases your risk of forming clots. So this deals more with um, heart attack than it would. It doesn't have anything to do with heart failure or atrial no. fib or any of the no. other. And in, in, if you mentioned atrial fib, in patients that are low risk for developing clots from atrial fib, and that's typically people who are young, um, the recommendation for those people, for those patients, 
is to take in a baby aspirin a day. If you're in what's considered a higher risk group, um, and again, you know, your score is calculated based on age and pre-existing disease, then you're going to use warfarin or one of the newer medications that are out. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Upstate cardiologist, Dr. Robert Carhart, about the new uh, guidelines from the American College of Cardiology and the American Heart Association. Now, you were at the conference in New Orleans recently where they unveiled these. Um, So talk to me a little about other, because there was more than just aspirin. What are, what are some of the other recommendations that so stood really out? what the, what was presented was the ACC American College of Cardiology American Heart Association joint statement on prevention primary prevention of cardiovascular disease. There have been guidelines in the past. This is the newest iteration. So aspirin was one piece. Aspirin obviously was the big thing that came out because. Whenever you talk about stopping a therapy, you know, it makes news. Um, Don't use medication and people get excited. But there are a lot of other components to this. Um, And really, a lot of it has to do with what you as an individual can do to reduce your risk. Um, And some of it was based on, you know, providing some guidance as to when we should be intervening on people, for example. So if your cholesterol is high, again, they talked about risk groups based on age and based on other factors in terms of who should or shouldn't be started on a medication to lower their cholesterol. Um, So they talked about that in terms of primary prevention. Again, the, you know, the the interjection here is if you already have vascular disease, so you've had a heart attack, you've had a stroke, you're going to be on these medications. But if you don't have any of those and your cholesterol numbers are high, who should and who shouldn't be started on a medication? So those guidelines were there. They talked about appropriate level of exercise. You know, we should be doing moderate exercise. And I think the recommendation was at least 150 minutes per week. Um, and again, this is for people who don't have a heart condition. Who do not have a heart condition. This is, you know, what can you do to help? What can we as healthcare providers suggest to patients to reduce their risk? Um, you know, there was discussion about diet and obviously stay away from fats. And, you know, people should be eating more plant-based diets and a more, quote, Mediterranean-style diet to try to reduce their risk. You know, smoking, we all know smoking is bad. Smoking predisposes you. Again, they talked about the various interventions that can be done to help people to stop smoke. So from that standpoint, there there were a lot of, there was an emphasis on a lot of different things for primary prevention and in trying to reduce the population at whole or your patient specifically in terms of their risk of developing a cardiovascular event. Did they talk about or change um, the high blood pressure numbers? Yes, that was a a recent change. Um, And it used to be considered 130 over 80 was considered prehypertension. That's now considered hypertension. Um, And, you know, you should be intervening early. And really some of this is just based on the fact that the longer someone runs with a slightly higher blood pressure, the greater the risk that they're going to develop changes that may 
in a sense, propagate that blood pressure and continue to go down that road. So they lowered the goals. Um, you know, it wasn't that long ago that you were fine as long as you were less than 140 over 90. Right. Now it's 130 over 80. And, you know, they're lowering the target. So now you have a whole lot more people that are considered hypertensive. But again, some of the the emphasis here is what can we do to intervene early? So if your blood pressure is running consistently 134 over 86, say, that doesn't mean that somebody's going to just say, oh, start this medication. It means, you know, you need to exercise more. You need to perhaps lose weight. You need to look at your diet. Are there things you can do to fix that? So things besides medicine that Absolutely. Can- and really, you know, this shouldn't be looked at as a way to, you know, push more pills on the population. It's really more an issue of trying to classify people in terms of them understanding you know, even though maybe you think you have a reasonable lifestyle, here's a few other things you can do just based on where you may be falling with your risk. So I think everybody knows that smoking is bad. Mm-hmm. So when I go to the doctor and the doctor asks me if I'm a smoker, I may feel like, well, I know I'm not supposed to be smoking. I'm going to say no. I mean, how do you tell if someone's telling you the truth? Well, I mean, the transplant programs, for example, actually test to look for nicotine in your system. Oh, really? Yeah, there are ways of doing that. Um, you know, you, you depend a little bit on a person's honesty. I mean, you know, sometimes it's not hard to figure out somebody smokes just based on, you know, kind of the nicotine stains on their fingers, for example. Right. Um, but really the reason that we as healthcare providers are asking is because it changes your risk. So your blood pressure, your cholesterol levels may be acceptable for somebody who is a non-smoker, but because you're a smoker, that changes it. And, and we may have to do other things. So yes, you know, we all recognize it's not the best thing for you. Also recognizing that it is an addiction as other things are, and it's very hard sometimes for people to stop. But it's important to let your doctor know yeah. that that's I mean, you know, being upfront and honest is going to help. I mean, you know, I've had many patients tell me, what's the point of coming here if I'm not going to tell you the truth? Right. right. Well, thank you. It sounds like um, people who are taking aspirin maybe ought to have a conversation with their doctor and find out if they still should be doing that. Absolutely. And I, I think certainly, you know, the, the statement that I kind of made at the beginning, if you've already had something, don't stop. Um, and if you just decided to start taking aspirin on your own because you read it was a good thing, have a conversation with your doctor because you may not be somebody that should be on it. All right. Well, thanks for being here. My guest has been Dr. Robert Carhart, a cardiologist from Upstate Medical University. I'm Amber Smith from Upstate's podcast and talk show, Health Link on Air.